Good to see you this morning. Uh, as, as Chad referenced, we're bringing our study in the book of Acts to a close this week, uh, or our series in the book of Acts. We're actually not going to spend that much time in Acts. Uh, if you've been journeying with us throughout our study of Acts, you know that where we left Paul last week, he was on a ship bound for Rome that got shipwrecked. Um, where we pick it up in chapter 8, uh, he is back in Rome, and the details of what happens to him in Rome are kind of sparse in the scriptures. Uh, Luke doesn't tell us uh, about his trial. He doesn't tell us even what, what actually happened to Paul. And it's interesting because, you know, there's, gosh, since chapter nine or so, we've been looking at this man's life and everything's been building up. And then you get to, to Acts 28 and it just kind of fizzles with, with Paul that he's, he's been doing all this great work and then his story is just kind of over. The, the book of Acts ends with these two really encouraging verses. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I think the reason Luke ends Acts that way is because Acts was not just about Paul, and Acts is not ultimately about Paul. Acts is about Jesus and his gospel. And back in chapter one, Jesus said, my gospel is gonna go forth to the ends of the earth. And so Luke said, the way we need to end this thing is show that the gospel really has. It's gone all the way to Rome. And Acts is a testament to the faithfulness of God that what he says, he accomplishes. But what I wanna do this morning because we've been following Paul's life for months now, I thought it would be fitting, to look, fitting for us to look at how Paul finished. Because Luke might not tell us, but we do have a pretty good idea of how Paul finished in life. And, and I'll give you a spoiler alert, but Paul finished well. He finished strong. He ran the race well. And what I want to do this morning is look at 2 Timothy 4, which are the last written words, the last recorded words we have of Paul. So he is most likely, tradition says that most likely he's under arrest at this point, and he's about to be beheaded by Nero. And Paul knows this, and he knows that his life, he's got weeks, maybe months left to live. And so he writes this letter to his protege, in a sense, to his friend, to his brother, Timothy, and in it, he shares from his heart some closing thoughts on life, some last words. And a person's last words, you know, they're significant. Not always, but often. A person's last words are significant. They give us a window into their lives and even their souls. And some last words are, are sad. You know, I put together a list. Humphrey Bogart, his last words were, I should have never switched from scotch to martinis. Sigmund Freud, while dying of cancer, said, now it is nothing but torture. This is absurd. This is absurd. Leonardo da Vinci said, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Can you say perfection as much? Like the Mona Lisa? Uh, it's so fascinating. Uh, legend has it that as Voltaire was dying, a priest asked him to renounce Satan, and Voltaire responded, now, now, good man, now is no time to make new enemies. Uh, Joan Crawford, uh, the actress, as she was dying, 
her housekeeper was praying for her. And this one's really sad. Her housekeeper, she heard her housekeeper praying under her breath for her. And Joan Crawford cussed her out and said, don't you dare ask God to help me. Winston Churchill, his last words, says, I'm bored. he said, I'm bored with it all. And then he died. Frank Sinatra said, I'm losing it. Some last words, though, are interesting. Steve Jobs, his last words were simply, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. And that was it. Marco Polo, the famous explorer, his last words were, quit using my name in a silly game kids play in a swimming pool. <laughs> Just joking. It's actually not what he said. His last words where I have not told half of what I saw. He traveled so much to the world, and he says, I haven't even told you half of what I've seen. Uh, Mexi Mexican revolutionary Pablo Villa, after being shot, he knew the importance of last words. He just didn't prepare well because he said, don't let it end like this. Tell them I said something. Um, <laughs> and some of them really are funny. James Rogers was a convicted murderer who was sentenced to death by a firing squad. And when asked if he had any last requests, he replied, yes, only one, a bulletproof vest. Another guy uh, that was on death row George Apple, he was about to be executed by the electric, in the electric chair. They said, do you have any last words? And he said, well, gentlemen, this is in 1928. Well, gentlemen, you're about to see a baked apple. <laughs> I thought that was funny, but we're, we have, it takes all types. Um, John Sedgwick, who was a union general in the Civil War, was told not to stand up from behind a wall or else he would make himself vulnerable to Confederate soldiers. His last words were, they couldn't hit an elephant from this distance. Uh, and then he was shot. Some last words, though, they're powerful. And the last words of believers can be incredibly powerful. Richard Baxter, he was a Puritan pastor. Uh, some of his his works have deeply influenced me. His last words were simply this, I have pain, but I have peace. I have peace. Martin Luther quoted Jesus, which is no shock if you know Luther. His last words were, into your hands I commit my spirit, God of truth. Thou hast redeemed me. Harriet Tubman, she died surrounded by and singing with her family, and the last words she ever uttered were, swing low, Sweet chariot. And then lastly, we have Dwight Moody. Uh, in his last day, he was in and out of sleep, and he, he woke up, and he, he had a vision, and he shared the vision. He says, earth recedes, heaven opens before me. If this is death, it is sweet. There is no valley here. God is calling me, and I must go. What do you want your last words to be? Have you ever considered your last words? If you could write them out right now, what would you write down? If you could have control over the last thing that you would say, what would you say? And as you're considering that, I want us to consider the last words of our good friend, the apostle, or in many ways our model and our mentor, uh, from 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're just going to look at verses 6 through 8. And I'd ask if you're able to please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Paul tells Timothy, and in turn, he tells all of us, 
for I am already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Those are powerful last words. Powerful last words from a man who finished strong. And I think in those words, we actually get a window into how to finish strong in life, how to finish well. I think this is something we all desire. I've never heard someone say, you know, I want to finish kind of mediocrely. I don't want to finish well. I want to fade out or just be on a decline for 20 years. I think we all have this desire When we get to the end of our life, we all have a desire to say, you know what, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I completed the task. I did what I was supposed to do. I stood where I was supposed to stand. But a lot of times we don't know how to to take that vision, that desire, and how it should shape our life today. And so from these last words, I actually want to hold before you seven encouragements. My wife said seven, and I said, I got to keep you on your toes. Uh, Seven encouragements from this passage. Uh, You could call them seven imperatives. I I don't even know what to call them really, but they're really important. Um, They're really important for us as we consider finishing well. The first thing we learned from Paul's last words about finishing well is that you have to expect a struggle. You've got to expect a struggle in life. Paul describes the Christian life when it comes to the very end. The metaphor he uses is I have fought the good fight. Our word agony is derived from from this Greek word fight. And what Paul is saying here is that life is a fight. It's a struggle. It could even be translated as a battle or as a war. And the reason I share this with you, and the reason this is kind of obvious, especially if you've been here over the last few weeks, but one of the great obstacles to finishing well in anything is starting naïve. One of the great obstacles to finishing well in a diet is starting naive. One of the great obstacles to finishing well if you want to run a marathon is starting naive, is being mentally unprepared. That's why anyone can start a diet. It's the following through on the diet. Anyone can start a marathon. Gosh, every time I walk outside, I might be starting a marathon. You don't know. (laughs) The challenge is, following through. And if you are not mentally prepared for what lay ahead, you will struggle to follow through. And this is an incredibly important word for us because in my experience, and I won't speak for everyone, but in my experience in in American evangelical Christianity, in a good desire to see people come to faith, Oftentimes we portray the gospel and all of the promises of the gospel, but we neglect the challenges. We neglect, we, so we, we, we hold forth the promise that Jesus said, which is so true and it's beautiful and I love it, that if you are weary, come to me, I'll give you rest. But we don't tend in our evangelistic presentations to say things like, but if anyone wants to follow them, they must take up their cross and they must carry their own cross. 
J.I. Packer, uh, he wrote this book, Knowing God, which was, if I could recommend one book to you outside of the Bible, that would probably be, probably be it. I read it 15, 20 years ago. Um, I've read it numerous times since. But the first time I read it, I was, I think I was a senior in high school. And I'd been following Jesus for three or four years. And when I read this passage, it had a profound impact on me then, and it's stuck with me ever since. And it's, it's a little long. I'm going to paraphrase it just a little bit to make it easier to understand. But here's what Packer says. He says, there's a certain type of gospel ministry that is cruel. It does not mean to be, but it is. This type of ministry starts by stressing the difference becoming a Christian will make. Not only will it bring us forgiveness of sins, peace of conscience, and fellowship with God as our Father, it will also mean that through the power of the indwelling Spirit, we will be able to overcome the sins that previously mastered us, and God will lead us through all our problems in life. Now, in general terms, these great assurances are scriptural and true. Praise God, they are. But it is possible to so stress them and to so play down the rougher side of the Christian life, the daily chastening, the endless war with sin and Satan, the periodic walk in darkness, as to give the impression that normal Christian living is a perfect bed of roses, a state of affairs in which everything in the garden is lovely all the time and problems no longer exist. Or if they come, they only have to be taken to the throne of grace and they will melt away at once. This is to suggest that the world, the flesh, and the devil will give us no serious trouble once we are Christians nor will our circumstances and personal relationships ever be a problem to us, nor will we ever be a problem to ourselves. To picture the normal Christian life as trouble-free is bound to lead sooner or later to bitter disillusionment. And I think this is why God in his mercy gave us all the stories he did in the book of Acts. Because Acts does show us, and it's filled with these incredible accounts of how the gospel went forth, how it was unstoppable, how it broke through barriers, national barriers, ethnic barriers, racial barriers, socioeconomic barriers, that the gospel went forth to all kinds of people all throughout the world in that day. But Acts is also filled with story after story after story of hardship and opposition, of persecution and suffering. And that's, I'll tell you, that's been one of the challenges of preaching acts as a preacher. You know, I collaborate with the other pastors, the other preachers in Sojourn. Every week we talk through sermons. And it seems like for the last three months, we sit down and we kind of look around and it's like, well, I guess we're preaching on hardship again. I guess we're going to talk about suffering. Why? Because that's what acts is. I mean, think of the last three months, every week. It's, it's different, but it's the same. Paul gets flogged. Paul gets beaten. Paul gets stoned. Paul gets attacked by a mob. Paul gets imprisoned. Paul is unjustly tried. Paul gets shipwrecked on the Mediterranean. Week after week after week. And that's just the struggle we see in Paul's life. We know if we go beneath the surface, there's his daily struggle with sin. The civil war of the soul, he describes in Romans 7, what I want to do, I don't do, and the things I do, I hate. 
top of that, he's a pastor. He's got struggles in the church. He talks about his burden for them. But Paul, one of the reasons he was able to finish well is he wasn't surprised by the struggle. He wasn't shocked by it. It didn't catch him off guard. John 16, Paul took those words to heart, or at least what Jesus says there to heart, that in this world you will have trouble. And this is a truth that we know and we get it in our mind. And then we have two or three good days and it totally slips away and we wonder, why am I suffering? Why is life so hard? We have to constantly put, things, put this truth before us. Life is a fight. It's a struggle against sin, against the evil one, and against the powers and forces of this dark world. And you can't be passive. You've got to expect the struggle. If you want to finish well, expect to struggle. Number two, if you want to finish well, you have to know the goal. Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. When I say know the goal, what I'm trying to tell you is that finishing well, it's not about perfection. It's about perseverance. And I love the balance of what Paul says here. He speaks with confidence, but not triumphalism. He says, I fought the good fight. He doesn't say, I won the fight. He doesn't say, I laid a haymaker on Satan and then trampled on his body. No, he says, I fought. He doesn't say, I won the race. I smoked Peter and John. They're huffing and puffing five miles back. I beat everyone out. He says, I finished the race. Now, if life were a 100-yard dash, you wouldn't celebrate finishing it. But because life is a marathon, at least for 98% of us, if, if we run a marathon, I know some of you are athletic freaks, but for the rest of us, if we run a marathon, what is our goal? It's to finish. And Paul says, I went the distance. He doesn't say I beat everyone else. He says, I went the distance. I didn't give up. I kept going. Paul is not declaring victory over all of life's ills. He's declaring that he persevered to the end. And what I want to hold before you is that finishing well, finishing strong, it doesn't mean conquering all sins or resisting all temptations or living a spotless life. Finishing strong means persevering. It means continuing on when we stumble. It means getting up when we fall. It means not letting any of the blows be lethal blows. And it requires us to do things again and again, like confess sin to God and other people, to seek forgiveness when we wrong people, to ask in, or to extend forgiveness when people wrong us, to restore broken relationships. That's how we persevere. The Christian life, it's not about all these things we accomplish. It's more persevering while we are on this earth and we live in between the times of Jesus' coming. So know the goal. Expect a struggle. Know the goal. Number three, run your race. Paul says, I finished the race. And this isn't the first time he's talked about life as a race. When he wrote to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, uh, if you were here when we studied this, he had this one little line. He said, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. To finish well, you have to run the race the Lord has set before you. 
Here's where you have to understand that God's will, God has a general will for all believers. And this is the will that he reveals for us in Scripture. All who call on Christ, all who claim the name of Christ, there are certain things we're all called to. We're called to pursue holiness, to put sin to death, to share the gospel, to extend mercy to those in need, to be generous. But those are all general, and those are, those are things we're all called to. But then God puts very particular calls on people's lives. And these particular calls, by definition, are gonna look different in different people's lives. Another way to think of it is, if life is a race, God has laid out a different course for each of us. We don't all run the same race. We're not all called to live as Paul lived uh, or, or to accomplish all that Paul accomplished would be a better way of saying it. Actually, none of us are called to do what Paul did. Paul was called to do what Paul did. You know, there's this passage at the end of uh, John's gospel where Peter, after he gets restored, Jesus tells him, hey, hey, I'm still in it with you and I still want you on my team. Like, I still love you. And he gives him these great promises. And then he ends, oh, and by the way, you're going to die in service to me. And classic Peter, he looks around and he sees John and he says, What's, what about John? <laughs> I'm going to die. What about him? And Jesus says, essentially, you do you, Peter. He says, what do you mean, what about John? What's that to you? My calling to you is for you to obey and follow me. And the reason I say this is because one of the, the challenges of finishing well, one of the obstacles to finishing well is comparing our lives to other people's lives. And even more, more particularly, comparing the race God's put before us to the race God's put before other people. You know, some of you in this room are called to go to the ends of the earth to share the gospel, and some of you are called to change diapers in this season. And that's okay. God puts these, and some of you are called to do both probably. But that's okay. God puts a race before us, and when we compare or we... or. <laughs> where we denigrate the race God's given us, there's no way we're going to run it well. And so what is the race he's put before you? What's the task he's put before you? What does faithfulness look like in your life, in your job, in your family? To finish well, you have to run your race and be faithful to the course God laid out for you. Number four, you have to pour yourself out. Paul knew life was a struggle. Paul was well aware that life was a fight, but he knew that life wasn't only a struggle. And he knew that life wasn't just a fight. Paul wasn't a stoic who just said, life's really hard and then we die. He had a greater vision for his dying, but also a greater vision for his living. And Paul didn't view himself as a victim in the cruel game of life when he suffered. Instead, he viewed himself as an offering. And he viewed his life as an offering. 
You know, Paul, like I said, he, he's in prison when he's writing this. He knows that before long, Nero is going to have him beheaded. And yet listen to how he speaks about his death. He says, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering. All right, this is an allusion to the Old Testament sacrificial system, which when you would sacrifice an animal as a burnt offering to God, oftentimes the way you would complete the sacrifice, the, the last act of the ceremony would be to take a cup of wine and pour it at the foot of the altar. And Paul, as he's contemplating the fact that he's about to be martyred, he says, you know, I'm kind of like that cup that's about to be poured out in service to my God and my King. Paul, he didn't let the hardships of life embitter him. He didn't let the suffering or injustices of life knock him down and keep him down. He didn't view himself as a victim. He viewed himself as a worshiper. He didn't view his death as an injustice. He, he viewed it as an offering, an act of worship, his last great act of fidelity. You know, I do this, we do this men's Bible study every Saturday morning. 30, 40, 50 guys come out. If you've never been, uh, I don't know why. You should come. It's it's an awesome time together. And we talked yesterday morning about finishing well. And I heard more than one, I think it was two or three or four stories about people who didn't finish well in life. And the reason they didn't finish, these were believers, the reason they didn't finish well is because something bad happened to them and they never got over it. Life kicked them in the teeth and it made them cruel and bitter and they never knew how to get over it. Felt like this is unfair. I mean, one of the stories was someone on their deathbed in their 70s, 80s, 90s. They're talking about something that happened to them at 12. And I don't want to downplay the injustices of life or the suffering that happens in life. I don't want to downplay when people have wronged us. But if you want to finish strong, you can't constantly be looking back at those things. And the way we as believers, we don't spend our life just, you know, going back over and playing the retape uh, or the replay tape of all of the bad things that have happened is we say, it doesn't matter what happens. My life is an offering. That's where the Lord's called me to walk in this season. I'm going to walk there. Because this wasn't just Paul's view of, of death. It was his view of life. Romans 12, therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Living sacrifices. Holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What does it look like to be conformed to the patterns of this world? Well, what does our world teach us? It's all about you and everything revolves around you. Our world teaches that we are all centers of the universe. And I, I've been following Jesus for 20 years. I've seen dozens of people walk away from the faith in those 20 years. And I've never seen someone walk away from Jesus because 
they did a deep dive in scripture and history, and they said, you know, I was worshiping Jesus, but now I've become convinced that the gospel was not true. Now, they might have said that, a couple of them, but that wasn't what was really going on. Because I've been around long enough to notice the pattern and recognize the pattern. Almost every time I see people walk away from Jesus, uh, it's because they forgot that their life was not their own. They forgot that we as believers, we're called to pour ourselves out to offer our lives as living sacrifices. And instead they said, I don't want to do that. (sighs) Yeah, I might have been bought at a price so I can go to heaven. That sounds awesome, but I don't want to be bought at a price so I have to be a living sacrifice to God. Entitlement creeps in. They start to say things, and I get so scared when people say things like, God just wants me to be happy. I've heard that way too many times and watched the wake of wreckage and destroyed lives that that mentality leaves behind. I just want to be happy, so I'm going to leave my wife. I'm going to bail on my family. I'm going to bail on the church. I'm going to bail on the Lord because God wants me to be happy, and all these things are really hard, and I don't like it when things are hard. So I'm hating eject. Entitlement is the enemy of faithfulness. When we start thinking we deserve things, we don't deserve anything from the Lord. We deserve judgment for our sin. We deserve wrath for our rebellion. We don't deserve anything, but God graciously gives us his son, graciously gives us his spirit, graciously gives us new life, But then he calls us to offer our bodies in response to all that he's done. Our great act of worship, our great act of fidelity is to offer all that we have to give our lives away in service to him and to give our deaths away in service to him. If you want to finish well, you have to pour yourself out as a living sacrifice, as a drink offering. Number five. We want to finish well. You, we have to remember that, that we live forever. And this is a kind of a balance to the first one because the first one is pour yourself out as a living sacrifice, pour your death out. And she's like, that sounds really hard. This is really tough. Well, Paul knew something that we tend to forget, and that is that as believers, we live forever. When Paul talks about death, he doesn't talk about it as the end. Go study how Paul speaks about death. Death to Paul is an annoyance. It's like a gnat flying around his face while he's trying to get some sleep. And I don't want to minimize how traumatic of an inconvenience death is, but that's what Paul saw it as. If you look at verse 6, Paul doesn't say, I'm being poured out like a drink offering because I am about to die. He says, the time has come for my departure. What a cool word. The time has come for my departure. And that word in the original language, it's a word that had multiple meanings. It could mean departure, but it could also mean loosening. It could mean freeing. And so... It it was a word that would describe if you had an oxen that had been working all day, the end of the day, the oxen would be unyoked, 
so that it could eat and rest. That's this word departure. It was a word for a ship that had been tied up by its moors that the ropes were let loose and it could finally set sail. It had been loosed. That's this word departure. And it was also a word that could describe taking down a tent, loosening a tent so that it collapses, so that you can pack it up, put it in your bag, and continue on your journey. Now, I, I think all of, those, all of those ideas and pictures fit with what the Bible teaches about death, but because Paul was a tent maker, I'm thinking maybe he would lean to the last one. Well, not just because he's a tent maker, also because he wrote 2 Corinthians 5. And in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul, he's contemplating his death there as well. He says, for while we are in this tent, he's talking about our bodies, he says, we groan and are burdened. Now, I think some of what he's saying here is, while we're in these bodies, we groan because these bodies aren't the best. I mean, they start off great for most of us, but over time, they wear down and they break down and they have physical limitations. And he says, while we're in these bodies, we groan. And he says, we long, though, we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. And so what he's saying here, this is a super deep dive that we're not going to get into very much because uh, it's a seven-point sermon. But what he says here is that our bodies, like what we want, we don't actually want to be out of our bodies. We don't want to be disembodied spirits just floating around the universe. I know that's what a lot of us have been taught about the Christian afterlife, that, that the sum of the Christian afterlife is we leave these bodies and float in the sky. Well, there is a time where we will be disembodied, but Paul's theology on this is actually really, really important for the Christian life and how we live day to day because he says we don't, we don't want to be out of these bodies. We actually want to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. What he's talking about there are our resurrection bodies. That when we die, we do lay these bodies down. We go to be in spirit with the Lord. But when Jesus comes to make all things new, he promises us resurrection bodies. Bodies that never wear down or break down or fade. Bodies that never get sick. And Paul, he's saying, I long for that day. I'm groaning, yes, because life here hurts. I'm groaning also because, gosh, how amazing will it be when I get to put this thing down and get to put on the resurrection body? And this was a deep source of hope for Paul. It wasn't just pie in the sky, going to go float around as a spirit. He said, no, Jesus is going to create a new heavens, a new earth that's going to be like this one, but better, and it's never going to have sin in it. And then he's going to give us bodies that are never going to break down or wear or, or fade. And I think this is total speculation, but I think the, the resurrected body of Jesus is what our resurrected bodies will be like. He's able to walk through walls, but he's still able to eat. How awesome is that? <laughs> the point is, Paul knew he was going to live forever, which is why he had no problem pouring out his life. You know, and I've been 
working through all of C.S. Lewis's works again this year. I've never read them all, but I'm trying to read them all in one year. And when you do that, you notice certain themes that pop up in their writings. And what I've noticed with C.S. Lewis is he is always talking about and always thinking about the fact that we're going to live forever. It's always on the forefront of his mind. And it shapes his understanding of evangelism, of sharing the gospel with non-believers. It shapes his understanding of friendships, of marriage, of ethics. And ultimately, I think it's one of the reasons he was such a great writer, because his writing is filled with such hope as you read it. I mean, it's very clear, and he's British, so it's a little snarky at times, but it is hopeful. He knew we were going to live forever. To finish well, we have to remember we're going to live forever. Number six, not only are we going to live forever, we're also going to get a crown. To finish well, you have to anticipate the crown. Paul writes, Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And so Paul's building here. And so it's not just that we're going to have these new resurrected bodies. But in that day, God God is going to come to us and he's going to place a crown on our head in these new resurrected bodies. So it's not just that we have a new heavens and a new earth as a playground. God will be there, but he won't be there with a switch in his hand. He'll be there with a crown in his hand. And it's the crown of righteousness. And Paul, you know, he spent so much time writing about the fact that the moment we trust in Christ, we are declared righteous in God's sight. That right now, Christian, God sees you hidden in Christ and you are righteous. Your sins, your faults aren't held against you. But on this earth, we know that reality doesn't always match experience. That we might be righteous in God's sight, but our sin still does a lot of damage to other people and to ourselves. So when Paul says, we're going to get this crown of righteousness. He says when we pass from this land of dying to the land of the living, we'll receive not just new bodies, we'll get this crown, and this crown will be the ultimate, a symbol of the ultimate permanent state of righteousness we will have. We will sin no more. Have you ever thought about that? We will sin no more. If that doesn't sound incredible to you, I don't think you've ever really wrestled with sin. We will sin no more. We will no more have this, I want to do this, but I can't because I'm stupid and I make dumb decisions. I want to do this, but I lack self-control. We're going to get there, and and it's not going to be that constant agony of, of fighting with ourselves and fighting these desires that we hate in ourselves. God's going to give us the crown and we will be righteous forever. If you want to finish well, you have to anticipate the crown. Gosh, how much motivation does that give you today to fight sin? Because that's where we're going. Lastly, to finish well, you have to long for his appearing. Paul tells us this crown of righteousness is not just for him. He says, it's not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. If you are longing for his appearing, 
you're going to get this crown. And the word translated long there is actually the word loved. All who have, but it's confusing because it's a loving longing. He says, if you are loving and looking forward to and longing for Jesus' return, this crown, this crown awaits you as well. And it's important that, that you understand the word is not just longing, it's actually loving. Because right after this, that's verse 8, and verse 9, Paul tells Timothy, do your best to come to me quickly for Demas, because he loved this world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Paul's holding before us here a deliberate contrast between a love for Christ's appearing, all who love is appearing for, but there's also Demas who love this world. And his love for this present world overpowered his love for the appearing of Christ. And it went badly for him. And it's so tragic because in Philemon, Paul calls Demas his fellow worker. This isn't the only time Demas is referenced. In Philemon, he sees fellow worker. And then in Colossians, he calls Demas his friend. And now here, at the end of his life, he says, "Uh, actually, Demas is a deserter. Things got hard. Because he loved this world, he bailed. Now, I, I actually don't, we don't know the details of his desertion. I don't think that, that Demas walked away from the faith here. I think he walked away from the fight, though. Um, and we've all done that. He stepped out of the fight. Paul, because of the sufferings and everything else, it was a very challenging time. And I'm sure Demas said, man, I've got a house on the beach in Thessalonica, or I can continue to live here in the streets fearing for my life. Love you, Paul. I will write. I'll see you later. But I don't think he he was an apostate. Paul talks about people who just totally bag the faith differently than he talks about Demas. And I say that because when I read this passage, we all have a lot of Demas in us. We all have this desire to love this present world more than we love the appearing, the return of Christ. And in our day-to-day living, it's so easy to let the love and the allures of this present world overrule and overpower our love for the appearing of the return of Christ. You know, I, I mentioned about our men's Bible study that meets every Saturday morning, and certain themes have arisen in our time together. Um, and I'll hold this out for you as an encouragement. One of the themes is that no one in life goes from A to Z. What I mean is no one goes to bed one night saying, I love Jesus, I love his people, I love the church, I love, if you're married, I love my spouse and I love my kids, and no one goes from that and then wakes up the next morning and says, burn it all to the ground. I wanna leave, I wanna bail on my family, I wanna bail on my kids, I wanna bail on my God, I wanna bail on my church. No one goes from A to Z, but anyone can go from A to B. Anyone can get up in the morning and say, you know what, I don't think I have time to pray or I shouldn't pray or I don't want to pray. Anyone can get up in the morning and say, I don't want to open the word. Anyone can go two, three, four, five weeks without coming to church. And I'm not just talking here on Sundays. I'm talking about gathering with saints. 
Anyone can linger in an unhealthy conversation or an unhealthy state of mind for too long. Any one of us, we can have a sinner rise in our life and say, I just don't feel like fighting against that one. Any one of us can entertain a temptation for a little too long, a discouragement, depression, unbelief. And what happens is if we're not careful, we go from A to B and we make that compromise and B to C and then C to D. And then the next thing you know, we are at Z. And we're asking, how did I get there? How did this happen? And the answer is actually really clear. One step at a time. One day at a time. You quit fighting. You quit running. And the question, because I don't know if any of us are at A. I, I want to be at A. And I guess for this morning, before you, I'll tell you I'm an A, you know, but I, I don't know where I'm at. Do you know where you're at? I know I'm not at A. I know I'm not at Z. And so the question is, what stir us, stirs us to get up and fight? What stirs us to continue the race and to fight against those things? And for Paul, it was longing for Christ's appearing. That's what propelled him forward. That was his motivation. It wasn't remembering the cross as much as it was longing for his return. Six times Paul talks about Christ's appearing. It's a very prominent theme for him. It's something he's always talking about. I long for the day when he comes. And because I long for that day, I was able to finish the fight and complete the task. I was able to keep the faith. To finish well, you have to long for his appearing. As we come to the Lord's table, we remember the words of Jesus who said, this is my body that's been broken for you. And this is the cup, the cup of the new covenant, the cup of my blood that's been poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And what I want you to, to think about this morning is wherever you might feel you are right now, in God's sight, we're all at ace. Now, you might say, but gosh, I've had all these sins that I've been, I've been toying with or I've been nurturing or I haven't been dealing with. I'm not at an A. In God's sight, you are because you are righteous in Christ. And what communion offers us, it's not the only place that does, but it offers us such a visual picture and, and such a kind of almost, it's a ceremony for us every week to say, all right, what do I need to deal with so I can get back to A? so that I can live up to what I've already attained. And so I want to encourage you, if you're a believer here this morning, if there are those compromises, and there are, we all have them. If there are those things that you have left unattended in your life, if there's a mentality or a bitterness that is pulling you away from the Lord, I want to encourage you, before you come to the table, lay it down. Communion teaches us we can lay it down. The hammer already fell. God's not going to get mad at you for laying your heart before him. And then walk out of here with the new desire to fight. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in communion, but you take part in Jesus Christ because he alone will enable you to finish strong and he alone is the key to really living forever. He created you. He loves you. He died for you, 
And he, he is actively at work drawing people to himself right now. And so if you're here and you're not a believer and you feel some of that, don't, don't delay. Run to him. Let me pray.